Hiya, Ed here with your friendly reminder to check the show notes for any content warnings related to this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Also, just in case we've fucked up massively and made any big old spoilers related to any other movies, we'll pop those in the show notes too, so you can consider yourselves fully warned. Thank you, enjoy the episode. Unbreakable Movie Chain, the podcast where each week we discuss and review a film based on a link to the previous movie. I'm Madeline Gould and I'm joined as ever by Ed Howells. Ed, how are you doing? Hello. <laughs> I'm all right. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. Um, we come to you this week from a cupboard in Birmingham and under a duvet in Nottingham. I knew that the podcasting uh, setup would not be glamorous, but I've <laughs> I'm already sweating so much. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I didn't think that I would be the more comfortable of the two of us sitting in my little laundry cupboard, surrounded by coats and blankets and stuff. But uh, yeah, I am this week the more comfortable of the <laughs> yeah, two of us. That's fine. So this is the second week on the trot. These, uh, as, until I get my shit together and get myself sorted out, the, these episodes can be known as the the duvet diaries. <laughs> the, the, the duvet diaries. Like that. <laughs> um, how are you? What have you been up to this week? What have you been watching? Tell me all about it. Um, so, uh, rewatched David Fincher's Zodiac. Ooh, always excellent. Um, yeah, which I it was the second time I've watched it. And I felt much the same as I did the first time. I liked it a lot, but it's it is a little dry, and I'm not entirely sure why. Like I I I love the look of it, and the story engages me. There's something about knowing, going into it, that you're not going to have that satisfying who done it resolution because yeah. the Zodiac killer was never caught. Yeah, going into the film knowing that does make the mm-hmm. whole film feel a little bit like okay. Like I don't know. It, I know that yeah. the film isn't really about that. It's not, but at the same time, I don't know, you, you kind of go into it wanting it to be a little bit about that. Um, still, performances are great, and I there is not a David Fincher film that I don't like. Even his version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Oh, I really like it. And uh, even Alien Cubed. I really enjoy parts of Alien Cubed. I like it. <laughs> um, I've, not seen, I've not seen Benjamin Button, so... Oh, I, I might not enjoy that if I saw that. No. And that might be why I've chosen not to, to watch it. Because I sort of feel like I might not get much out of it. Yeah, but it, that's got nothing to do with David Fincher's direction. It's just because I'm not into the story particularly. That's that's sort of his main job though, isn't it? Is to tell the story. Yeah, I guess. I'm just... I, I, yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, Benjamin Button, it's a weird one. Everyone's very good in it. And uh, and the, and it is very... I think it's very well directed. I just don't really care. I don't really give a shit. Um, <laughs> yes. But if you're going to watch David Fincher... I mean, I love Gone Girl. I think his direction of Gone Girl yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. He's awesome. So, uh, yeah, the other thing I watched this week, uh, finally got round to watching Del Toro's P- uh, Pinocchio. Ah, okay. Yeah, which is an interesting one. In a good, in a thumbs up way, or th- I haven't seen it. I would recommend you watch it because it's gorgeous to look at. The animation, I mean, unsurprisingly, it's a beautiful piece of work. Mm-hmm. Like, every frame is just 
absolutely, yeah, gorgeous. Okay. Uh, yeah, the animation, wonderful. I like about two thirds, three quarters of it, and then it just it falls apart at the end for mm, me. Mm. Um, and yeah, the sort of the way that it falls apart in the end kind of just taints much of what has gone before. That's a for me shame. by association. Yeah, it is a shame. Because um, there's stuff in it that I really, really love. Yeah. The birth of Pinocchio is incredible. It, it, it's so monstrous. It's it's like it's like watching it's like watching Frankenstein. Ooh, okay. It, it's 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 incredible. Yeah, I love that, and I love the the wartime aesthetic of it, the the, the setting, mm. and the sort of the takes on the familiar bits of the Pinocchio story from the Disney versions. One of which is one of my favourite films of all time, and one of which is an absolute disaster <laughs> of the movie. Uh, presumably um, you think the one with Tom Hanks is uh, one of your favourite films of all time. and um... Oh, yeah, it was straight in at number one. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I find that really interesting that the... I'm going to immediately assume that I've got uh, the... the, the Disney, the original animation is uh, one of your favourite films of all time. So interesting because it's fucking terrifying. Yeah. Like really monstrous, really haunting and terrifying. So Mm -hmm. big thumbs up from me that that's one of your favourites. So yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, I would watch Pinocchio and I would love it, but I'd have to turn it off before the end. I'd have to turn it off when the whale showed up. Oh yeah, Monstro, he's fucking Monstro scares the shit out of me. Yeah. I could deal with the with the kids turning into donkeys, I could deal mm. with Stromboli, I could deal with all that stuff mm. absolutely fine. Mm. In fact, that stuff was really cool. I liked to be sort of like, oh, ah, scary. But then the monster showed up and that was genuinely terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You been watching anything? Uh, yeah, so what did I, what have I seen? So, um, <clears throat> film-wise this week, um, I've only seen one film, which is a film that I've been meaning to watch for ages. Um, it's a, a, a little horror movie called Last Shift. So the reason I wanted to watch it is because the director of Last Shift has remade it. Hi. So it's the same director, same story, same plot, same everything. And he's mm-hmm. but he's remade it, and it's called Malum. And I saw uh, first of all, I saw the trailer for Malum and thought this looks wicked. This looks really cool. Mm. And then I realised that it was a remake, but in that in a very odd way, it's a remake by the same team. It's very strange. Yeah. So I thought, oh, I'll watch uh, Last Shift first because it seems cool. Um, it's kind of the basic premise is it's a um, a rookie cop is taking the last shift at an old police precinct because they've moved uh, the police precinct to a different location. So she's oh. there because she needs to be on duty. Um, in case anyone turns up but like all the calls have been rerouted like there's kind of, basically there's nothing, mm-hmm. going to be nothing to do um, and it's a night sure. shift but she is waiting for a biohazard team to come and pick up a load of evidence so that's the kind of basic ah. premise and then shit starts happening and it's uh, you know so that, that set up it's just very reminiscent of Assault on Precinct 13 yes yes exactly it's very I mean and there's you know there's stuff going on in her in her past her dad was a cop and all of this stuff and I would I have really high hopes and then yeah I was I have to say I was quite disappointed by this film it felt quite by the numbers despite it having quite a good setup quite a good premise and, and it just wasn't very scary but then again I have as I've said before I'm I, I, I'm not I'm not scared by things particularly sure. but I do think I can tell when something is scary even if it doesn't scare me and I don't think anything in this was particularly scary and then I've been decorating and I've discovered that the Harry Potter films are a really excellent decorating companion (laughs) (laughs) so I've um, yeah I can see that yeah so I did uh, I did number four yesterday 
Actually, yesterday I did number four, number six, and number seven. And I was watching, and I was up a ladder and um, painting away. Um, and Richard came in and saw that I was watching Harry Potter seven. And um, and I was like, oh, sorry, I'll just get finished. I'll finish off, and then we we'll, we'll, um, can, we can turn it off. Um, and then I came down my ladder and washed up my paints and sat down on the sofa. And I was like, sorry, we'll, we can turn Harry Potter off now. And he was like, um, maybe maybe we could just finish finish watching it. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm uh, quite, maybe, quite into this. Maybe I quite like it, actually. I'd quite like to finish watching it. Um, and yeah, speaking of horror, I mean, um, there's a sequence in the seventh film where they go, um, they go and there's a scary encounter with an old lady. And um, that's mm. a fucking great horror set piece. Really enjoyed that. It's um, mm. I'd sort of forgotten how good that bit was. So, uh, Ed, what are we talking about this week? Uh, this week we are discussing The Virgin Suicides. It was Sofia Coppola's directorial debut from 1999. Um, this was your suggestion, Gould. What was the link? The link was, yeah, The Graduate, one of the most kind of notable things about it is that the music was provided by a pop duo. I, I say pop. Mm-hmm. Um, very loosely I'm aware that they aren't pop music in the way that we understand it but it can't, in terms of like they're a popular music duo as opposed to a classical music duo or a film composer mm-hmm. so Simon and Garfunkel provided the music for The Graduate so um, another pop duo um, providing the soundtrack was The Link and Air the French pop duo um, provided the music for the Virgin Suicides. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll discuss that. I'm sure because the music is very very prominent in the movie. Yes. Um, but I feel like Air's score kind of takes a bit of a back seat mm-hmm. to a lot of the other music there. I thought when we went into the film that the mu- that there would only be music from Air in the way that in The Graduate we only hear Simon and Garfunkel and a little bit yeah. of um, the music that Mrs. Robinson puts on. She puts on a bit of like. I don't even know what it is. Yeah, there is additional music by Dave Grusam. But the there is there is music in The Virgin Suicides and actually as quite an important part of the plot. I kind of hadn't anticipated that. Um, and we can have a conversation about diegetic and non-diegetic music a little bit later, Ooh. Ed. Yes, we must. What was that? Was that a, a film term? <laughs> mise-en-scène, mise-en-scène. Mise-en-scène. That's the only film term I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Ed, um, it's your turn this week to do as a plot synopsis. How are you feeling about that? Uh, well, we'll see how it goes. Are you Let's... gonna? Are you busking it? Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm completely busking it. Well, um, the film was 97 minutes long, so that gives you 97 seconds. If you're ready, three, two... One, go. So it's 1970s suburban Detroit. There is a sort of deeply religious family in this sort of suburban neighbourhood. It's five sisters and their parents, uh, Mr and Mrs Lisbon. And the neighbourhood boys become obsessed with these uh, sisters who we learn at the very beginning all commit suicide. And it is essentially the story of the events leading up to this mass suicide. That's kind of it, really. Yeah. That's the plot. <laughs> it's a nice, a clean 45 seconds that you did there, Ed. You did beautifully Lovely. well. It's a very, it's a very simple plot, deceptively so. Because I found myself going through it thinking, okay, when is this going to kick off? Yeah. Shall I, shall I do some housekeeping? Please. Yeah. Housekeep me. Okay. So, um, directed by Sophia Coppola, uh, the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola, cinematic royalty. And we'll talk about him at some point in the future. I'm 
almost certain. Mm -hmm. She also adapted the screenplay as she's written the screenplay for all of her features. Uh, she adapted the screenplay from Jeffrey Eugeniedi's novel, uh, which was his debut uh, novel from 1993, which won the 1991 Aga Khan Prize for Fiction. I don't know how literary awards work, but his m novel that came out in 1993 won the 1991 Aga Khan Prize for Fiction. <laughs> so I guess if somebody wants to write in and explain that to me, please do. It might be an award where you can submit an unpublished manuscript. I feel like a lot of awards in that world are even more so than uh, than in cinema they are marketing tools yes so i think a lot of awards probably are awarded before publishing and these novels sort of circulate yeah. for a long time before publishing so there's always sort of you always hear about the most hotly an anticipated debut novel of the year and you think how is a debut novel so hotly anticipated well because it's been yeah, circulated around the literary establishment and probably picked up a few minor awards here, there and wherever. Yes, yeah, yeah. Is how I assume it works. I would really love somebody to email us who knows yes. who can explain. <laughs> that would be great. So as I say, Sophia Capella has adapted all of her uh, features, which uh, include, but are not limited to, Lost in Translation, and Marie Antoinette and The Bling Ring. So the executive producers... On this movie, we've got quite a list of producers included in which is Francis Ford himself, who, as I say, we'll touch on another time. There are two executive producers on this. We've got Fred Fuchs, who worked with Francis Ford Coppola on The Godfather Part 3 and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Friends in high places for Sofia Coppola. I know she's uh, faced a lot of accusations of nepotism and things like that over the course of her career, some of which are probably founded and justified. But I think she's an interesting filmmaker in her own right. So uh, I think people can probably shut up about that now i think so i mean because she's kind of from a kind of filmmaking family mm -hmm. like when you see who she's yeah. related to and everything but she has yeah. certainly proved herself and bearing in mind this fame film came out in 1999 she's been making films for 24 years and has been incredibly successful and lauded uh so i think mm. yeah we can probably shut the fuck up about it <laughs> I think I think we probably can as well. Um, yeah, indeed. Like the the Coppola family, as as you say, is yeah, it's huge and it is cinematic royalty. Sophia Coppola is first cousins of Nicolas Cage and Jason Schwartzman. Ah, yes, of course. So yeah, the Coppolas are everywhere in Hollywood. The other executive producer on this is uh, Willie Barr. You're gonna have to help me with this actually. So I say Willie Barr. Have I done that right? There's an umlaut, umlaut over the A in Barr. Uh, so what? Bear. Bear. Okay, Willie Bear. <laughs> Um, whose other credits include uh, Carlito's Way, Jeepers Creepers, Prozac Nation, and um, the original film of The Red Shoe Diaries, the precursor to the TV series. Okay. Yeah, the cinematography provided by Edward Luckman, who, as far as I can tell, is probably the most experienced person on set. And this is a theme I think I'm going to come back to a couple of times over the course of our discussion is mm. the experience of people uh, on set. So Edward Luckman, a sort of very experienced cinematographer at this point, going back to the uh, sort of early 70s yeah so he's he's worked a lot on sort of documentaries by this point so he had an early credit on um the herzog uh, when herzog's short documentary la souffrière mm -hmm. about the volcano going off um which is available on youtube and is an interesting thing to look at mm. it's only half an hour long also a couple of uh, music documentaries so there's one called say amen somebody which is about the gospel music scene mm. um he had been involved in a couple of movies at this point uh, including Desperately Seeking Susan um, was the most sort of interesting one that pinged out at me but also uh, not very well thought of uh, Dennis Hopper movie the name of which I didn't even write down <laughs> so it's good that I'm <laughs> thorough with my with my note taking um, <laughs> 
the Dennis Hopper film we do not speak of. The, yeah, that he. Uh, it might be quite an interesting one because he uh, directed and starred in it. Dennis Hopper did, and when it was released, it was widely panned. I'm gonna have to find out what it was called. You're gonna have to because uh, it, it can only be absolutely bananas. Oh yeah. Well, I think I think it was it was absolutely panned when it was first released, but then a decade or so later, there was a director's cut version came out with another 10, 15 minutes of stuff that suddenly made the whole thing make a lot more sense. <laughs> so just bear with me for a moment while I uh, while I find out what that's called. And you can do some magic in the edit to make me not sound like a complete numpty. <laughs> I shan't. Yes, the film I'm referring to is 1990's Catch Fire. That's all one word, Catch Fire, directed by Dennis Hopper. And it, it was an option uh, until I saw just how badly it had been received. I was like, nah, oh, not dealing with that. Edward Luckman uh, subsequently has gone on to do other interesting things. So around about the same time he made this, he was also cinematographer on Erin Brockovich. Ooh. And he has subsequently gone on to work quite extensively with Todd Haynes. Um, so he was cinematographer on I'm Not There, Carol and Dark Waters, all of which are really... Uh, beautiful looking movies they're really interesting yeah looking. yeah totally gorgeous yeah. interesting um, much of the rest of the creative team was really quite early in their careers at this point so it's not like she's assembled a team of Hollywood heavy hitters mm. here so uh, the editor is Melissa Kent who had been assistant director on Mighty Ducks 3 and Jason Goes to Hell the final Friday she'd also <laughs> <laughs> she'd also worked with uh, with Francis Ford Coppola as co-editor on The Rainmaker in 1997 this was her third credit as editor outright the other two were uh, films that I've not heard of um, called Mixed Signals and Some Girl uh, she subsequently worked on Louder Than Words The Age of Adeline and the Britney Spears movie Crossroads ah. the production designer was uh, Jasna Stefanovic apologies for the pronunciation again yeah right at the start of her career uh, she'd been a trainee in the art department on Dead Ringers and she'd been production designer on Cube which have you seen Cube? I haven't seen Cube. I th- oh, you'd love Cube. I think I would love Cube, yeah. <laughs> 100% you would love Cube. Yeah, she'd been production designer on Cube and uh, subsequent to uh, Virgin Suicides was production designer on Josie and the Pussycats, um, the Jessica Albert dance movie Honey and the Terry Gilliam movie Tideland. God, what, a, what an odd mix. Interesting sort of varied career. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is lovely. Um, art director John P. Goulding, uh, which is his first credit. He'd previously done different jobs in the art department. He'd worked on La Femme Nikita, uh, so which, that was the TV show uh, based on the movie, which I believe was just called Nikita. There is a film called Nikita. Yeah, so La Femme Nikita was a sort of TV spin-off of Nikita. Um, he was also production designer on the uh, Eerie Indiana spin-off, uh, spin-off series, Eerie Indiana: The Other Dimension. Which I don't, I don't know if you're slightly too young for Eerie Indiana. I am. Ah, oh, damn, because you definitely would have loved Eerie Indiana as well. That was one yeah. of my staples growing up. Okay. Yeah, this sort of kids horror series set in this weird suburban town Mm. um yeah where there was just odd stuff everywhere so the episode that always sticks in my mind was about these next door neighbors who it transpired over the course of the episode hadn't aged in years Uh, so it was like a mother and her two sons and towards the end of the episode the reveal was that she kept the three of them in tupperware overnight that's amazing that sounds so great it was such a good series i loved it it starred yeah. um the the guy who uh, he was the kid in hocus pocus so he he was the star in indiana yes uh, so mo- moving on with the production team uh, the set decorator megan lease she did a lot of tv movies through the 90s none of which particularly stand out there was one called blackjack which which was directed by john woo that was probably the most interesting of mm-hmm. her of her credits uh, she'd also worked 
worked on a TV crossover movie uh, called The Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman. Um, which was a sort of mashup of the two series together, <laughs> which I think is probably most notable for featuring a very early performance from Sandra Bullock. The costume designer was Nancy Steiner, who had been in the costume department on Ben and Ted's Bogus Journey and the original movie of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, this is uh, her fourth credit as a costume designer itself. The other ones that she'd been costume designer on were called, uh, some indie movies called uh, called Safe, uh, The Winner, and Bong Water. Right. <laughs> None of which I'm familiar with. Uh, she did subsequently no, no. work with uh, Sophia Coppola again on Lost in Translation, and she would have met up with Kirsten Dunst again on Elizabethtown. She was also costume designer on Little Miss Sunshine, The Lovely Bones, Ruby Sparks, and The Killing of the Sacred Deer. So she's, of the whole production team, I think she's the one who's gone on to do the most interesting, uh, interesting yeah. movies subsequently. As we mentioned, the... Uh, score is provided by Air, who also appear on the soundtrack for Lost in Translation and Marie Antoinette. So I think it's fairly safe to say that Sofia Coppola is a fan. Ah, I didn't realise that. That's interesting. Uh, looking at the cast, we've got James Woods as Mr. Lisbon, Kathleen Turner as Mrs. Lisbon, Kirsten Dunst as Lux Lisbon, Josh Hartnett as Trip Fontaine, Michael Parry as the adult Trip Fontaine, um, Scott Glenn as Father Moody, Danny DeVito as Dr. Horniker, uh, AJ Cook, Mary Lisbon, Hannah Hall as Cecilia Lisbon, uh, Leslie Hoyman as Teresa Lisbon, uh, Chelsea Swain as Bonnie Lisbon. It's narrated by uh, Giovanni Ribisi, who would be familiar from as Phoebe's brother in Friends, and also Saving Private Ryan. He's wonderful in that too. He's also uh, he plays Nicholas Cage's younger brother in the incredible Gone in sixty seconds. He's he he's one of uh, one of my um, oh it's that guy actors. Yeah yeah and, yeah and, he's yeah. he's really good yeah Frank, he's terrific. And then you've got a sort of bunch of boys who yeah. I'm not going to go into uh, because they're all largely interchangeable, um, sort of nondescript teenage boys, one of whom is a young Hayden Christensen. And this illustrates actually perfectly my point. In the credits, Hayden Christensen is referred to as he plays Jake Hill Conley. In Giovanni Ravisi's uh, voiceover, he's referred to as Joe Hill Conley. Oh, for God's sake. (laughs) So to be perfectly frank, if the film doesn't care about these boys... Neither do I. Well, quite. I think that that is... We'll come on to this maybe later. Or maybe... No, I'm going to fucking say it now. Um, okay. I was reading about Jeffrey Eugenides, who wrote the novel, and he um, his sort of opinion about the book. And his intention when writing the book, which I've not read, to be fair, all of the boys are quite distinct, and the girls are like a kind of blob of like they're all kind of combined and he said that he would really have liked for the actresses to all kind of play like them to swap and change parts throughout the film so you kind of get this weird feeling of like you're not quite sure which one is which the whole way through whereas in the film all of the girls are given much more kind of individual characters I say much more Mm. they are they are at least given some kind of individuality they're at least introduced by name I just think it's interesting that the man who who wrote the book sees the women as a kind of amorphous blob mm. um, and the woman who adapted it and directed it sees the girls as individuals where and the boys are this kind of just like smoosh mm. I'd, I'd like to read the book actually uh, yeah i think I'd, i feel like it's a book that i wouldn't finish just yeah I, I, possibly um it's interesting that you think the the girls are more individual because I, I I I still find them outside of uh, Lux and Cecilia I yeah. find the rest of the girls an, an amorphous blob. Well, no, no. There's long hair, there's short <laughs> hair, and there's the other one. 
<laughs> yeah, there's there's the one who goes under the table with Lux at the dance. Oh, I don't know which one that even is. Is that Neither long hair I. or short hair? I've got no idea, and I've watched it twice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, great. Right. Uh, just to round out round out the uh, the housekeeping, it was made for a budget of six point one million dollars, and it took at the box office ten point four million dollars. No Oscar nominations. Uh, it did win three awards. Uh, so it won the Chicago Film Critics Association Award for Best Original Score. Uh, it won the Young Hollywood Award for Best Director. And it won the Clotrudis Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Now, I had to look this up. So this is Clotrudis. How would you spell Clotrudis? C-L-O-T-R-U-D-I-S. Almost. Uh, it's a C-H. C-H-L-O. T-R-U-D-I-S. Um, that sounds like some kind of inflammation of the groin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. Oh, um, no, she's got a Clotrudis. <laughs> <laughs> so here's, here's a little bit of uh, blurb about the Clotrudis Awards. Um, the, cl- <laughs> uh, the Clotrudis has flared up. <laughs> Oh, she's had a she had a flare up right in the Clotrudis. <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, sorry. Here's a little bit of blurb about the Clotrudis Awards. So, the Clotrudis Awards are given out annually, beginning in 1995. According to the Society's bylaws, to be eligible for an award, a film cannot have been released on more than 1,000 screens nationally during its first four weeks. Films that only play at festivals or are released direct to DVD are not eligible. And it is an award given by the Clotrudis Society for Independent Films, which is a non-profit organisation that honours outstanding achievement in independent and world cinema. Sure. Sure. I mean, I think it is really interesting that this film, it premiered at Sundance. I uh, want uh, just double check. Uh, I might double check that. And uh, So it premiered in like April 99, mm-hmm. but it then didn't actually get a release until May 2000. So it took a full year um, for it to go from premiering at a festival to actually getting a distribution. And that was only in America. So it was it was a reminder to me of just how slow the film industry is. Yeah. Nothing nothing <laughs> happens fast. Yeah, I mean we actually to be fair, we were talking about about like maybe books get sort of circulated before mm. actually being released. Films do that exact same thing. There's a whole the whole festival circuit that they get shopped mm. around to to try to find distribution. Yeah, it's this it's mm. the same thing, isn't it? The point of a film festival is to show a film in order that you'll get distribution. I mean, in terms yeah. especially independent films, like the whole point is that you can show it to an audience, get some reviews, get some buzz and hopefully get it picked up so that someone will actually distribute it for you um, which is exactly what has happened with this and um, there are plenty of films that premiere at a film festival and then never see the light of day again oh yes so quite often with good reason I would think yes like, I, think, I think generally <laughs> the ones that make it out of festivals are the ones that you might want to see um, the ones that don't you definitely don't want to see yeah well it did it did well then um, yeah it, it made its money back and a little bit more well well done <laughs> Okay, Ed, what uh-huh. do you think of this film? What, what's, your, what's your feelings? When it finished, because uh, I watched it with Jem, and I turned to her, I said, that was a weird one, wasn't it? Mm. And I said, uh, it felt like a film without a protagonist, which was really peculiar, um, because there are no characters in the movie whose head the movie spends any time really trying to get into. Like, you would expect that the film is trying to get into uh, Lux's head, but there is always distance, because we see... So, the girls, the five girls, I keep thinking of them as four girls, because... Cecilia dies so early on. Um, but yeah, the, the five girls are seen entirely through 
the eyes of these boys. So then you sort of think, well, are the boys the protagonists? Well, no, they're not, because as we've discussed, they're a complete amorphous blob. I don't even know what any of them are called. And this actually, the fact that we don't know uh, which of the boys is supposedly narrating the movie yeah. sort of adds to that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the boys is narrating the movie. We never know which one it is. We only know who it definitely isn't. What's he called? Tit. Tit thing, Tad. Trip. Tit trip. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I assume it's been narrated by one of the sort of four core boys because you've got the four boys and then you've got a whole bunch of other boys that sort of drop mm. in and drop out chatting shit about the girls. Um, yeah. Sort of making out like they've done all sorts of things with them. The four boys who take them to the dance and mm. not the four boys. They're not, no. Which I found a bit confusing. So the boys aren't the protagonists. The girls aren't the protagonists either, really, because you just don't no. ever get to know them. The parents aren't the protagonist no so it sort of adds to the, you get this it's got a real sort of hazy dreamlike quality where you don't know really where you're supposed to be mm. what you're supposed to be following who you're supposed to be following and that sort of hazy dreamlike quality is elevated by the score by air and also the camera work the, the cinematography it, it looks sort of hazy and dreamlike so yeah it's it's a strange it's a strange movie I know that we were talking a bit about this um, with primary colours and how kind of Adrian Lester's character ought to be your fixed point so that everything else can move around and yeah I think you're right with this I feel like it would it would help me understand more if I could even just name one of the characters yeah, you know, I absolutely agree. One of the boys, you know. Well, it's weird. Um, I actually watched this film with a very good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Tilly Branson, <laughs> and she was like, "Yeah, the male gaze made me feel quite uncomfortable for most of it." And I was like, "Yeah, it's interesting because it is the whole film is male gaze of these teenage boys, including Trip Fontaine, actually, mm-hmm. because when he's introduced as a character, I was like, this is how all the boys view." Trip Fontaine mm. and the boys the boys look at him and see all the girls kind of falling over themselves and that probably isn't actually what the reality is um, and like the girls the boys probably imagine them all lying around in bed together in their underwear but it mm. probably isn't actually what's happening and it's like there is a teenage male gaze over the entire film that is sort of dreamlike but there is nothing to hold on to. There is nothing to kind of get your teeth into. And no. it's ve- and it's really difficult to give a fuck about anybody. Yeah, it's it's got no impact because we don't know who any of the people are, really. Like, yeah. we, we're not really made to care about the, about the girls and their plight, really. Mm. And so when, when they die at the end, we kind of go, well... It was a foregone conclusion because you've told us yeah. from the start and you've not you've not let us into their world, really. No. You've kept them at arm's length. Like even Lux, um, the Kirsten Dunst character, she's sort of the, the main one of the girls that you get to know, kind mm. of. Even she is kept at a distance. Like uh, the, the bit where after she's had sex with Trip on the football field mm. and she wakes up alone, that is all shot from a distance. So she wakes up mm. alone and... You've just got the massive scale of the football field and you don't really see her reaction because she's so small and tiny on that field. And then uh, she gets in the taxi and you you do get the shot of her face on her journey home, but you don't really see it clearly because you've got the taxi window in the way and there's a bit mm. of shine on that. So you've got that in the way. And then when she gets home and has the confrontation with her mother, that all happens in mm. in a distance on there on the porch having that confrontation and we're way back at the bottom of the drive that's a really interesting point like yeah in a way 
it feels like Lux should be the one that we we know the most about. But actually, we, we don't know anything about her. We spend a little bit more time with her, but that's only because she is the character transgressors. And it's her actions that lead to the parents kind of locking the, the girls away and taking them out of school and stuff. It's kind of because of her. But that's the only reason why we spend any more time with her. We don't actually find out what she thinks about anything and we don't find out what any of them think about anything apart from maybe the moment where Lux is upset because her mum wants her to burn her records yeah but that's not great emotional insight that's just a that's a kind of understandable response to something it's yeah. not telling us anything about her no, and prior to that moment there is no suggestion that Lux is hugely into music or really loves no. these records. You never get that before that. It's just, oh yeah, I'm going to burn your burn your rock albums. Do you know, the only character that I found myself really drawn towards and feeling really like, I really want to spend more time with you. I really want, I, and also just because her performance is so good. Kathleen Turner as um, as the mum. She's so wonderful, but also um, that character is really fascinating. I think both Kathleen Turner and James Woods are, are terrific in this i think yeah i said i was going to bring up experience their experience as actors really shines through because without being actually given much in the script or you know in in the direction of it they find the both of them they find a lot of detail there's a lovely moment at the homecoming dance when when Lux has been crowned homecoming queen and everybody's so excited mm. and happy you just get this little shot on Mr. Lisbon's face and you just you see after how conflicted getting them to this dance had sort of made his life um mm. there is a sort of a restrained happiness at seeing at seeing his daughters have a good time for once um and I think Kathleen Turner and James Woods their weight of experience they know what their job is as actors and they know how to find the detail in the text that um a lot of the younger and less in a less experienced cast could have used a little more help finding some detail and that would have actually i think helped us be drawn into it more we spoke um maybe not on the recording but we spoke about how this was referred to as uh, Kirsten Dunst's breakout role. No, mm. alongside Kathleen Turner and James Woods, she more often than not would have been one of the most experienced people on set. She'd been working for six years. And like in big stuff, like she had stolen the show from Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt in Interview as a Vampire. Uh, she'd also gone toe-to-toe with Robin Williams in Jumanji at this point. Yeah, and she'd absolutely held her own against Winona Ryder and, well, everyone in Little Women. You know, she had actually had a pretty good career. And in this same year, she made Drop Dead Gorgeous, which I don't know if you've ever seen Drop Dead Gorgeous. Uh, no, I don't think I have. I highly recommend it. It's one of my favourite films. It's a, it's a mockumentary about really, really rural, small towns America mm-hmm. um, having a beauty pageant at the high school and so it's Kirsten Dunst Denise Richards Brittany Murphy Amy Adams so the, and most of them are unknown but it's also mm. got Alison Janney Kirsty Alley and it's fucking great what a terrific cast and it's really funny mm. it's a um, it's a pitch black comedy like uh, Kirsten Dunst's character does makeup at the mortuary and practices her tap dancing while she's doing it and she's great in it and that's the same year as this so she's kind of her career is really thriving yeah it's a nonsense to refer to this as her breakthrough performance and yeah I think she finds some detail here there and, and wherever do you know it's interesting that you mentioned that they could have done with more help and mm-hmm. Sophia Coppola hadn't got any experience 
experience of directing actors yet. She had acted at this point, had been widely derided for a performance in Godfather Part 3. Uh, well, that's where the whole nepotism thing comes from. Um, yeah. And to be fair, you know, she was pulled in to take over because Winona Ryder dropped out of the film. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so yeah, Winona Ryder was cast as um, Michael Corleone's daughter in The Godfather Part 3, mm-hmm. dropped out, and so she was brought in. But she had done other stuff in between that. So it's not like she had come from absolutely nowhere to do it. She had been working as an actor. Um, she's got a, a a different name that she has as her acting name. Do you know what it is? I don't know. It's Domino Coppola. Right. <laughs> she says she adopted it because she thought it was glamorous. And it's... <laughs> It's not very good, is it? it, it no, it's it's silly. <laughs> She'd had, had a burgeoning acting career, um, mm. but unfortunately just because Godfather Part 3, which isn't a well-received film anyway, but it basically just put an end to her acting career. It's mm. like, no, she's that's it. I always think uh, Godfather Part 3 is slightly unfairly derided because it's naturally compared to what has come before and it can't match up. It can't match up to those other two films. Yeah, I always just sort of thought Godfather 3 was sort of all right. It is. It's it's fine. It's not a masterpiece, but it's fine. Anyway, uh, yeah, I think that your point about her not yet having the experience, you know, where was she supposed to have gotten that experience from? It's not like, I don't blame her for it. I just think that the film would benefit from those actors being able to give more kind of individual performances because like, you know, exactly like you point out, the, the girls, well... So there's Celia, Cecilia, sorry, who is notable because she gives that incredible line right at the start of the film mm-hmm. where the, she's lying in the hospital bed and the doctor says like, you know, God, you're, you're only 13. What do you know about misery? And she's like, obviously, doctor, you've never been a 13 year old girl, which is just fucking great. It's such a good line. Yeah, that's that's the, those are the opening words of dialogue in the film. Yeah, we get a bit of voiceover before that, but those are the that's the that's the first exchange, first dialogue exchange in the whole film. It sort of lays out the film's intention for yeah, you. Sure. And without that, I don't think we would have there would be no intention at all. I think the way the film opens actually is is quite it's quite interesting. I was I was wrong footed by it. So it, it yeah, so the, the I think the the opening line of the voiceover was uh, Cecilia was the first to go and you get mm. You get the sound of the ambulance and there's this girl who looks dead in the bath. Um, mm. She's cut her wrists and there's mm. blood and she gets taken to hospital. But then the next thing you see, she's awake and talking. Oh, she's alive. So in my head, I was like, ah, OK, hmm. maybe these are going to be kind of uh, sort of metaphorical suicides uh, or, or some sort right. of like. So I was sli- slightly sort of wrong footed by it. And when when she actually did kill herself about 15 minutes later or 20 minutes later, that actually did have a bit of impact for me because because it was like, oh, shit. OK, yeah, that that is the story that we're watching then. OK, so these girls are going to die. So I thought that was quite, uh, quite clever. The other thing I like about about the opening, actually, I, I really enjoyed the first like half hour of it. There's a sort of a dry sort of almost Wes Anderson wit to it. Mm, like the mm. the boy who struts around with his sunglasses on and then jumps off the roof to prove his love. Yes. That whole section feels very, <laughs> very, very Wes Anderson to me. Yes, yes. The, this, yeah, the sort of the, the dryness, the deadpan. And the kind of um, the observational, the kind of eye of the camera itself mm. on just the profound awkwardness of that party that they have. 
Yeah. That like that's really great. That's really well observed. Um and that beautiful exchange that Kathleen Turner has when Cecilia tries to excuse herself from the party. Yeah. Um and she's had she's got bandages on her wrists from her suicide attempt that mm. her sisters have kind of sellotaped bracelets to. Yeah. And she excuses herself and her mum is like well, d- you know, we'll just have to have fun without you. It's just, it's so um, it's so kind of blackly funny and heartbreakingly sad. Mm. But and I think from Cecilia's suicide, the film kind of loses its way for me. Sure, as indeed the family does. Well, quite. The whole film to me just feels very vague. Yes. And it's deliberate. So I don't think that she has done a bad job of directing this film. Mm. I think that everything within it is intentional. I think that this is what she has chosen to do. And there's a lot of stuff that she does um, in terms of placement of the camera and choices that she's made that I think are really interesting, really good. Visually, it's stunning Mm. film. It doesn't successfully tell me the story. And I was really interested to hear what your synopsis would be because what is the story of this film? What is this film actually about? I don't know and I don't think the film knows because it's it's it, yeah, it's not focused on telling me a story. This is why I'd like to read the book. I actually don't know if I would enjoy the book very much. But what I would like to know, and actually any listeners who've read the book, please tell me. <laughs> I'd love to know. I think that within the film, at conflict is who the film's about. Yeah. Because it strikes me that the film desperately wants to be about the girls, but the book possibly is maybe more about the boys and how they remember the girls and what the girls meant to Mm -hmm. them. And I think that those two things aren't made compatible within the film. I don't think that she manages to kind of centre the girls and their experience or the boys and how they remember them and how their suicide has impacted their lives. And there are these little glimpses where it's like, hang on, the boys have like gone through all the stuff and gotten all these like keepsakes from the house. Like they've got Cecilia's diary. They've got all of these very bits and bobs. And like, why don't we know more about that? Yeah. And Trip as an adult is being interviewed. Who's interviewing him? I don't know. Uh, why is he talking about this at the table? Like, it just it feels a little bit like there isn't a there isn't a consistent format for the way the story's told. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree with that. Um, yeah, the the moment with adult Trip telling the story it kind of feels like a cheat to me because it's because right. it's sort of outside of the conceit of the film it, it's it, yeah. it's sort of a way of a way of telling us something that we shouldn't really know because the film is supposedly through the perspective mm. of these four boys in the neighborhood like a way of going ha this is a bit of mm. information for you that i couldn't really work out how else to deliver you or like maybe if they'd had all of the boys from the neighborhood as adults being interviewed yeah. and that would have maybe helped us to identify more with the boys as teenagers yes, certainly. or i don't know like a- apparently the film is extremely faithful to the novel and i wonder if that's maybe one of its downfalls perhaps mm. it hasn't translated well because it's too faithful to the book and I think a novel can afford to be a little bit more kind of dreamlike and uncertain. They talk about unfilmable novels and this may well be one of those not that it's got the prestige of you know Great Gatsby or um, Catcher in the Rye (laughs) or Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas which actually Terry Gilliam had a good stab at Um. (laughs) He did have a good stab at it yeah yeah. It's me and Richard were talking about Fear and Loathing the other day both as a book and as a film. It's one of those that I understand that it is good. Sure but I don't like it. And I think part of it is that I just find like, whoa, we were so off our heads, man. I just find that really unimpressive. And 
tedious. <laughs> That's yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll maybe we'll maybe talk about that one in the future. I'm sure. Actually, it would probably be quite an interesting one to visit. Yeah. This 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 might be a, a, a question with quite a short answer. What, what do we feel about Trip? Oh, we can fuck off. <laughs> I want to talk about his Lego hair immediately. <laughs> his hair. I I, I I I don't know. Maybe to me, it just looked like a very bad wig. Mm. I kind of couldn't take my eyes off it. It was distracting. <laughs> <laughs> that to me felt like the only thing that was very obviously period. Mm. Time in this film is an interesting one because it says at the start 25 years earlier. Uh, yeah, 25 years ago, I think. Yeah, which is interesting. It just means that wherever you are in time, you're 25 years from the, the events. Yeah. And actually, I think that she does quite a good job of not placing... It's not a 70s film. It doesn't look or feel massively 70s. Mm. Um, apart from his Lego hair, which just... It's a very weird choice. I found it very distracting. Would the film have benefited from a more concrete period setting, do you think? I don't know. I suppose it depends what they're trying to do. There is absolutely no reason why this this story has to be a 70s story. Yeah, yeah, it can actually take place at any point in time, I think. And it can sort of take place anywhere. I don't feel like it's a a particularly American movie. I don't feel like it's a particularly 70s movie, because it's not really about either of those things. Having the um, 25 years ago and having the narration does mean that it is sort of about memory and how you collectively how you remember events but then that isn't really explored very well so it's a bit like okay (laughs) yeah no I, I, I sort of felt the same I didn't I kept sort of forgetting that it was the 70s until Trip showed mm. up with his hair and that whole kind of swagger. I always forget how tall Josh Hartnett mm. is. Isn't he? He feels to me like he ought to be, uh, ought to not be very tall. I don't know mm. why, but he's really tall, In isn't this, he? In this, certainly, yeah. He, 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 he looks very tall and very thin. Yeah, lanky. Which I'd never sort of, I'd never thought of Josh Hartnett as tall and thin. No. I sort of just imagined him as kind of average height, average build. Yeah, yeah. It might, might be something to do with the way he's shot and, uh, yeah, and costumed. I don't know. Well, also, I think his uh, the the depiction of Trip, particularly at the beginning when he's first introduced, is kind of cartoonish. Yeah. Again, that's another thing to do with collective memory of how these boys perceive, like, the cool boy at school. There are bits in the movie where I think, like, ah, this is them having an unreliable collective memory of how something has transpired. Like, this isn't how it actually was. This is how they remember it. But I wish that that had been more prominent through the film. Like, if yes. the, the, the film had questioned the nature of memory in its in itself as a thing, you know. No, I think, I think yeah, I think so. I think that's one of the... There are a few little sort of glimmers of a more interesting film. Yes. Here. And I think that if it had, as you say, explored that, that sort of nature mm. of memory and collective memory in more depth, then, yeah, that would have been a really interesting film. I'd like to see yeah. that film. I also would have loved to see a film that is about kind of the tension within the parents and particularly the conflict in the mother about knowing that what she's doing to her children isn't actually the best thing for them but her religious fanaticism is so intense that she can't not it's like someone with OCD who understands that their behaviour is um, actually damaging to themselves and those around them but can't not that is I think that's absolutely fascinating I'd love to see a film about Mrs Lisbon that relationship between Mrs Lisbon and Mr Lisbon I think is actually really interesting avenue that the film could have explored in a lot more um, detail and depth because yeah all that stuff that that you said about um, Mrs. Lisbon knowing that uh, this isn't really good for the girls 
Mr. Lisbon knows all that stuff as well. Yeah. And he's just trying to keep the peace and give the girls as normal a life as he can give them. Yeah. But also he wants to sort of look after Mrs. Lisbon yeah. in, in a way and sort of, yeah, it's interesting that you sort of li- liken it to, to, to OCD and that sort of, you get that impulse. Yeah, it is like it is like a man who wants to do the best for his wife yeah. and for his daughters and there's a conflict there that could have been explored yeah and and would have made for a more interesting interesting movie that conflict between the two parental figures but again coming back to what you said about the experience of those actors uh, and like the detail that they bring to their performances like like it, in their exchanges they don't really say no one actually says very much in this film there isn't very much dialogue no. and the uh, but the little exchanges that they have particularly whenever they are faced with a decision that has to be made about the girls while the girls are there you you can almost feel every single argument they've ever had kind of crackling in the air between them and his kind of that thing of like not weak but um yeah i think i've written down ineffectual ineffectual man but it's like well he he isn't just ineffectual he has been made ineffectual by the wear and tear of the relationship the toll that the relationship with his wife has had on him and he is in a position in his life where he would rather see his daughters driven to suicide then stand up to his wife and that's mm. a really interesting dynamic that could very well have been explored but but wasn't so is this just going to end up being one of those chats where it's like wouldn't it have been great if they'd done that i, I think it might be um yeah if we just uh, just go back to trip very briefly yeah um i do i do love the juxtaposition between sort of cool young trip as the boys sort of saw him and remembered him as the sort of cool kid at school with that swagger and all that, um, juxtaposed with old Trip, who turns out to be in rehab and a yeah. real piece of shit. Yeah, just a real piece of shit. He's got he's got a line when when we've seen young Trip leave Lux alone on the field. He talks about how he didn't care how she got home. Yeah, and it's like it's weird. Yeah, she, he says uh, he says most people never taste that kind of love. But at least I tasted it once, right? And it's like, mate, what do you what do you think love is? <laughs> you you just you had your way with this girl on the football field and just left her to get home. However, le- le- left her in the middle of the night, alone in the middle of a football field, asleep. Like yeah. And now twenty five years later, you're talking about how you really loved her. Fuck off, trip. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, just fuck, fuck, fucking off. But also, it's really interesting because the boys are like the only one of us who really got to know Lux was Trip Fontaine. He becomes infatuated with her um, tries to talk to her but she doesn't talk to him because she's sitting with her sisters he then they have a whispered conversation in class while a film is playing they watch a nature documentary with all her family with Kathleen Turner sitting in between them just giving the most wonderful performance she's so fabulous in that scene it's so funny and then everything else between them is like furious passion, but not actual human connection. It's interesting that they're like, yeah, he's the one who actually got to know her. No, he didn't. And through their relationship, we don't get to know her either. We don't get to know anyone. No. All of the teenagers are just sort of there. Yeah, the, the yeah the teenage boys, the, there's the short one. And there's, uh, there's the one who, at that awkward party, sort of hits on everybody, including Kathleen Turner. Yes. <laughs> Which, like, she, she's magnificent in that moment. Yeah. Because <laughs> she just she's she's got these eyes that you just you see so much going on yeah. under the surface of those eyes, yeah. and yeah, the way she gives his pineapple chat short shrift is just 
I, I did, I did laugh. I laughed loud. It does prove to you that it is capable of offering you these little moments, and then, mm-hmm. particularly in the whole of the second half of the film, after Lux wakes up, the film after that point just feels like, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then. It doesn't feel like yeah. it's like, and then she was having sex with people on the roof, and then the, it got more strict, and then this happened, and then he lost his job, and then this happened, and then they died, and then it was the end. It feels like the whole film has kind of got carbon monoxide poisoning. everybody just feels a little bit groggy a little bit woozy a little bit sleepy yeah i'm with you on that (laughs) (laughs) for me i think uh, another avenue that the film could have wandered down a little more strongly or a lot more strongly than it does um is that sort of black comedy satire yes avenue because there are there are moments of it there's a, a wonderful sort of tv interview after the first suicide that made me howl with laughter the first time i watched it yeah there's this girl talking about how she wanted to commit suicide um but she didn't want it to look like like suspicious or something so she she put a load of rat poison in a cake and <laughs> It's so funny. She goes, she goes, my, my nan, who was 86, she really liked sweets. <laughs> she had three pieces. That scene is straight out of like Heather's. Yeah. Yeah. That was what I was thinking. Yeah. It was straight out of Heather's. The, but that isn't in keeping with the rest of the tone of this film. No, that tone doesn't come back again until the very, very end. When you get after the, after the suicides and you get that weird fucking asphyxiation party that the... That that the neighbours put on. Yeah. I could have done with more of that if that was an avenue that yeah. that Sophia Coppola was interested in exploring with this text. That sort of really bleak black comedy satire of this world outside of that. But you don't get that sense from the rest of the film. Like I don't I don't know why the girls are so popular at school. I feel like they would be natural targets for bullies. This sort of in this sort of isolated existence, they would be the school weirdos, no? Yeah, surely. Or is it that they? Are, it's like oh yeah, well they would have been, but they're beautiful, so they get away with it. Yeah, but that's not yeah explored but also it's like their entire home life and the way that they are at home is dictated by their mother's religious fanaticism yeah. but they aren't religiously fanatic and they seem to get away with not even having to pretend to be either yeah it doesn't explore the re- religious fanaticism either no i know which i really I, that i find really compelling that's really interesting i'd love to have seen more yeah. of that and you know the this idea of like oh yeah the mum kind of locks them up in the house it's like well they don't seem to be locked up in the house lux is shagging on the roof yeah lux is shagging on the roof how is she getting in touch with these men in order to have sex with them on the roof no idea where's she getting her cigarettes from they seem to be able to kind of drift around in their 90s it's so unclear and again i would forgive it for being unclear if the point of the film was the unreliability of memory yeah but they don't make enough of that and it's not they don't put a pin in anything <laughs> they just it's like everything is just sort of drifting around maybe a little bit of this and just oh, some of that yeah. um, okay fine yeah and like i say i don't think any of it is bad it's not like it i didn't no. not like it um 
I probably won't ever watch it again because I didn't get enough out of it. But do you know what? Maybe, maybe if you watch it at the right time in life, you would get more from it. Maybe to watch it as a teen. Although I watched it as a teenager and I didn't get it. So ah, maybe. Well, there we go. <laughs> uh, this is the thing I had. I knew that I had seen it before. And the only thing I could remember was that Lux wakes up on her own on the football field. And yeah, I, I can't. So yeah, I must not have got very much from it as a 15 year old either. So yeah. Hmm. Do you want to chat about the music a little bit? Yeah, let's chat about the music. Yeah, so um, the music, well, the music is advertised as being all by air. And the bits of music by air that you do get, really nice, really lovely, adding to this kind of dreamlike quality. I said before about diegetic and non-diegetic music. Um, So it's kind of the diegetic and non-diegetic is a term for when music that is kind of providing a soundtrack to a film but the characters within the film can't hear um, versus music that the characters in the film do hear so you know music playing out of a radio or records being played and the the diegetic music, so the um, the music that the characters can hear, that is really important in the film. And there's a very brief section. The the gang of boys um, are trying to communicate with the girls um, by playing records down the phone to them, and that feels like it ought to mean something. Yeah, I didn't really understand what the significance of the records was. Apparently it is them communicating their feelings to each other. So they're playing records to each other that represent how they're feeling. Sure. I, I, I kind of got that. It felt like a section that should have meant something to me, mm. but it didn't. It, it was really strange. It felt a little bit like what it should have been was an adult looking back on that going like, God, when we were teenagers, we thought that was really profound. Isn't being a teenager silly? <laughs> Like, (laughs) yeah, like, God, the things we did when we were young. But actually, um, the film treats it with real gravitas, but doesn't actually tell us anything about it. So the way the way that's set up, I feel like it's supposed to be like a like a secret code so that they can communicate with one another. Mm. But it doesn't it doesn't work like that. Yeah, it it was I I don't know. I missed the point of that. And that's probably my failing. No, I don't think it is. I don't think it is your failing. I think that it's a failing of the film. It's like she she got up to the point where Lux and Trip have sex in on the football field and then just kind of <laughs> lost interest in everything else that happens until the actual suicides. Because yeah. everything else, it felt like she was kind of going like, yeah, 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 yeah. I need yeah. to do the bit in the book where they're playing records to each other down the phone, but I'm not really interested in that bit. So let's just grab Yeah, where they're on. sort of doing Morse code at each other out of the window. Yeah, and yeah. yeah just yes, crack on through that and get to the... Get to the suicides. There's a version of this film where the relationship with Trip and everything, that all happens within the first 30 minutes. And then the rest of the film is about mm. a group of boys on one side of the street and a group of girls kind of trapped in an, on another side of the street and how they, mm. like that like that relationship and how they get to know one another without actually being able to meet up and speak and how the boys kind of think that they're going to be able to rescue these girls from their castle where they're being held captive and the girls know that that's not the way it's going to work and again wouldn't that have been nice Mm. that would have been lovely yeah yeah one of several versions of this film contained within the film (laughs) that would have been more interesting than the actual film (sighs) what a shame um (laughs) I, I did feel like there was a chance that Lux might survive. Interesting. Yeah, okay. Because apart from the Lux, it's the virgin suicides. And uh, by the end, she ain't no virgin. Yeah, that's very, very true. Um, which is, yeah, I think perhaps what we're supposed to be thinking at the end is that she might 
she might survive she might get out because yeah she's the last one that we see she's yeah. gonna get in the car and maybe like my thinking was okay maybe she's just driven off in the car uh, no she's put it in the garage and turned it on and that's a that's a deviation from the novel actually oh is it in the film lux is the last to die but in the book mary is the last to die which uh, doesn't actually really mean anything it's just that they've 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 changed that because Kirsten Dunst is of the girls. I guess she's the main character. I guess in the film she's sort of the main character, kind of. Yeah, yeah, she's the closest thing you have to a character that that things hinge on. Yeah, she's she's sort of a, at the centre of the drama, such as it is. So it it would make sense. Like, did you say it's Mary in the book? I think so. I mean, God knows which one that is. <laughs> well, exactly, and like, yeah, you, you you don't want the last one to die. That that sort of last thing to be one of the nondescript ones, whether it was long hair or short hair, you know, long hair, short hair, or the other one. Yeah, I know. Um... Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's an absolutely justifiable change. Interesting. Is it interesting, Ed, or is it just a bit Blair like the film? <laughs> <laughs> As I say, there was stuff I quite enjoyed about the film and I've enjoyed yeah. the discussion that we've had about it. Yeah. But yeah, no, I wouldn't watch it again. Would you recommend it to anybody? I don't think that I would because if I'm honest, if what you want is a film about teenage suicide, watch Heathers. Yep. It's just, it's it's superior in every way. And if you want a film that feels kind of like hazy and drifty, I think some of Sophia Coppola's other work is actually better. Like Lost in Translation is a really mm-hmm. good, if you want a film that's kind of meditative, I don't know, there's just, there there is no box that this ticks exclusively for me at all. It, the, no. it, it, yeah, even if I was doing like a, a Kirsten Dunst retrospective, I'm not sure this would be on the list. I think there are probably more interesting stepping stones in Kirsten Dunst's career to look at. And certainly from this period of her career, there are other ones that that you would focus on. Yeah, definitely. I know who I'd recommend it to. Who? Someone who is a big fan of Air, but wasn't aware that they'd soundtracked a movie. I'd say, oh, yeah, you should watch Virgin Suicides. Yeah, okay. That is probably (laughs) what the criteria would be. (laughs) Or, I mean, I suppose you'd have to recommend it if you were doing a retrospective of Sofia Coppola's work. That's the only reason why you'd watch it kind of as part of a set of stuff because I certainly don't think it's any... Or I would also recommend it for the performances of James Woods and Kathleen Turner, but it's not outstanding in any way. It's just part of a portfolio of work for a couple of people that it's worth having as a kind of academic interest, but it's not. But, you know, I think it does demonstrate that Sofia Coppola is a good director who does know what she's doing because this is a debut feature. It's extremely competent and she is doing stuff. She's definitely got a point of view. I think it's extremely competent in some some aspects of the director's job. Um, it, it falls apart in the storytelling, which is one of the most important aspects of a director's job. So, yeah, is it well directed? I'm not convinced that it is um, because of the reasons that we've touched on. The story, I think, is unclear. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't think she gets the best out of her young cast no yeah what it is is it's beautifully shot the editing is is lovely the way the way the sound is used the way music is used is really interesting i think it's a solid debut feature that we can see that she will have more to give in the future Mm. as indeed she she has had more to give in the future particularly with lost in translation which i think is terrific has your opinion of it changed at all over the course of our discussion i think i'm probably surprised no i'll retract that no not really (laughs) because i think i've been both fairer and harsher on it than i thought i was going to be because actually i think by the time i'd finished watching it yesterday i did just feel a little bit kind of like "Eh, 
that that was the thing that happened. I, I'm really glad that we've managed to kind of unpick what exactly it is about it that doesn't really work. But um, I don't. I haven't changed my mind. What about you? I, no, it's not changed my mind. I think it's probably sort of crystallised my opinion. And yeah, actually, like you, I feel like I've been... Certainly, I think I've been harsher than I expected that I would be. The more I thought about it. When I finished watching it, when, when I did my first watch, I thought, okay... Yeah, I quite enjoyed that. They were, you know, yeah, I, I felt I felt better about it then than I did after my second watch this morning. I, you know, if I had to, if I had to sit down and watch it again now, I'd really resent it. So I'm <laughs> I'm amazed that you that you managed to get through a second watch. It wasn't my most focused rewatch. No, <laughs> like it, st- it started out. It started out that it was, but then. I just sort of stopped taking notes. What a shame. Oh, well. What a shame. What a shame. Interesting, though. Interesting, interesting movie. Are you, are you cross with me that I chose it? <laughs> no, not at all. Good. No, not at all. Good. Because that's, no, that's, that's the thing that I am dreading is um, choosing a film by accident at some point where you're like, fuck you, Gould. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully, yeah. It won't, hopefully it won't happen. <laughs> Hopefully it does happen at some point. Actually, in a way, it's the films that we feel a bit blah about that are the worst films to choose because mm-hmm. I can't wait for you to choose something that I loathe. I loathe it. And it, I might choose something that I already know I loathe just to be able to chat about it, you know? Speaking of choosing... Would you like to play the game? I'd love to play the game. Okay. Yay. So, what I would have chosen. Well, for me, this is a really easy one because it's very easy to skip across into some of my absolute favourite films. So we either would have followed Kirsten Dunst and done Drop Dead Gorgeous. We would have followed Kathleen Turner and done Body Heat. Or we would have followed Scott Glenn and done Silence of the Lambs. Very good. Mm. In terms of what you've chosen, I I wondered um, thematically, again, I mean, we've already mentioned it. I wondered if you might go for something again that is to do with teen suicide um and we would have done heathers i'm trying to think what else we might have done i mean maybe religious fanaticism where we could have gone in loads of different directions for that um we could have had a look at paul dano in there will be blood for example or um yeah. there's loads of different ways uh, but actually I, I i honestly couldn't say so ed tell me what would you <laughs> what are we doing <laughs> well ed, you, you did touch on a couple couple that i that i mm. that did come to my mind but yeah you you didn't touch on what I have chosen Mm. Uh, so I could have gone in a lot of different directions so before I watched it uh, the only thought I had in my mind was to watch the other Sophia Coppola Kirsten Dunst collaboration and watch Marie Antoinette that isn't the only one there's The Beguiled from 2017 as well which I really want to see but that seems to be much more of an ensemble cast whereas Mm. yeah Marie that's kind of like a director and muse collaboration isn't it so yeah very much so have you seen it um, I haven't, no. So that would have been another reason to choose it. Yes, I've, I've not chosen that. Uh, when I watched the movie, there were a few things that popped into my mind. So yeah, the religious fanaticism, sort of thematically, with the rig- religious fanaticism and the uh, high school setting and uh, indeed with the homecoming dance and all that stuff, led me to Carrie. Oh, that would have been wonderful. Wouldn't it just? But I wanted to pick something that I hadn't seen. Yeah, fair enough. And I've I've seen I've seen Carrie a bunch of times. One of the other thoughts I had, talking about sort of isolated, a family with sort of, that has cut itself off mm. from the world and with isolated daughters, um, I could have gone quite obscure with the early Yorgos Lanthimos film Dogtooth. Ooh, I'd love um, to see Dogtooth. I have seen Dogtooth. Ah. Yeah, I, I saw it at the Prince Charles years ago and it's an interesting watch. Yeah. I've not chosen that either because, as I say, I wanted to pick something I hadn't seen. Yeah, okay. Um, so the other thing that popped into my mind, um, and I, it's what I've chosen, and it's really outside of my usual mm. 
my usual taste as well. It's so it's an adaptation of a book. Um, it's not a book that I've read. It's a book that's been adapted a bunch of times. I've never seen an adaptation of it. It has a period setting, um, which is often uh, something uh, that kind of puts me off a little bit mm-hmm. when you go back. I don't know. I, it's it's a failing of mine. When I see sort of period costumes from like 200 years ago, mm. I immediately kind of glaze over. Oh, and that's a failing of mine. It's not a failing, Ed. It's just your personal taste. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what I've chosen is to uh, look at another story of uh, some teenage sisters and what we're going to watch is Greta Gerwig's 2019 adaptation of Little Women which I've not seen ah! starring uh, Sesha Ronan uh, Florence Pugh and Emma Watson yeah and um, bloody and hell some other people What's her fucking name? <laughs> Dr. Ellie Sattler. What's she called? Oh, is it uh, Laura Dern? Laura Dern is Marmy. Yes, of course. And yeah. Timothy Chalamet. Shimmy, oh, shimmy, eh. Of course Timothy Chalamet is in it. It's a 2019 film. He was in all of the films in 2019. Have you seen... Oh, you've not seen the Winona Ryder version either? Nope. Right, we're going to have so much to talk about with Little Women, Ed. I cannot wait. <laughs> this is really exciting. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. As I say, it's uh, completely outside my taste. It's not a story I know. No, I've liked Greta Gerwig in the past. I love Saoirse Ronan. I think Florence Pugh's great. Uh, yeah, I'm r- really looking forward to this. That's really exciting. Where can we watch this film? Uh, it is currently streaming on Netflix. It's also available to rent on Prime and I think a couple of other places as well, probably Apple. But yeah, I think I'll be watching it on Netflix. Well, Fabulous. Please do write in and let us know where you would have gone. Um, I, I'm in- there's lots of different directions you could have gone in from The Virgin Suicide. So yeah, let us know what you would have chosen. And all that remains is for me to just say thank you very much for for listening to this week's episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Please do take a moment to like, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, And you can get in touch with us through any of the social medias and also at moviechain at outlook.com. We would love to hear from you. Bye from me and presumably it's bye from Ed. Ed? Oh yes, goodbye from me. (laughs) Bye! Bye! (laughs) Bye!